people of God, please stand as we come to worship our King, the Creator of heaven and earth. We are His creatures, the sheep of His pasture, and we get to come into His presence this morning. And He greets you and He calls you and He draws you from the world to enter and ascend Mount Zion to meet Him. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the words of our God. So the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twin linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, balsam oil for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Sends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray and ask him to illuminate for us. God in heaven, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its beauty and majesty. But we confess that our hearts are darkened and our minds are closed unless you open them, Lord. Please open them so that we can hear in faith what you are saying. So we can learn about you and praise you and be comforted with the gospel and be in awe of your story. All this we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so the history of the world is a story. The history of the world is a story. And the author of that story is also the main character. It's God. The story began... In Genesis 1, and immediately encountered uh, the first and greatest plot twist in history. The creature tried to overthrow the Creator. When Adam and Eve lived with God in paradise. They walked with Him in the middle of a garden full of fruit and peace. They had everything that they could have wanted and more. They lived with God, and yet they chose to rebel against Him. And to overthrow his rule. And as a result, the world fell into ruin. But God, the good and just king, did two things. The first thing he did was he cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And the second thing he did is he promised to bring them back. And the rest of scripture is about God fulfilling that promise to bring his people back into the garden, back into his presence with peace. In fact, you could sum up the whole story of Scripture with these words. God with us. It began with God dwelling with his people. Then the fall. And now we cannot dwell with God. God is distant far away, with an irreconcilable rift between us. But God bridged that gap. The story of redemption and what Jesus did is the story of God crossing that gap to unite us 
back to Him to reconcile us so that He can be with us again, just like the garden. The story is that God is going to reclaim His people and dwell with them forever. And that story is going to conclude with the hero and his bride running off together into the sunset. But the genius of Scripture is that this story is told over and over and over again in little ways throughout the whole book. This grand story, this grand plan of God to, to bring his people back, to dwell with them again, just like he did in Eden, is told over and over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture in every book. And the themes of this story are worked into every chapter and every verse. And we've seen this in Exodus. What is the story of Exodus but Israel separated from God? And God bridges that gap and brings them out of slavery... And where does he bring them? To himself. He brings them to himself, to his mountain, the place where he lives. He brings his people out of slavery so that, why? Why does he do this? Verse 8, that I may dwell in their midst. God with us. That is the story of Exodus. So as we enter into the, the construction instructions for the tabernacle, it's easy to read all these and kind of gloss over them. Right? There's all these measurements and details and sure, ram skins or whatever. Um, but whenever Scripture does this, whenever Scripture starts to go into painstaking detail, something important is happening. Because God is saying, these details are important and I want you to know them. Because God is communicating to us through every single design choice of the tabernacle. Now, unfortunately, I don't know what every single design choice means. But it's clear that the tabernacle is far more than just a nice place, a nice tent for God to live in. What we're going to see today is that the tabernacle is what we're going to begin to see and see this throughout the rest of the instructions is that the tabernacle is a mobile Sinai. It is the mountain of God made accessible to the people of Israel. Because for the first time since the fall, his people would have direct access to God's presence and God would dwell with them. God with us. But he's also teaching us about himself through these design choices, through all of these details. He's teaching us about the kind of God he is, the kind of relationship he wants to have with his people. And we'll see that God wants to dwell with his people physically, or you might say incarnationally. But the tabernacle was not permanent. And the promise of Genesis 3 was that the Lord would bring his people back to Eden forever. That the curse of the fall would be reversed. That the serpent would not simply be injured, but his head would be crushed. And so even in, as we read the story of Exodus, and as we read about the tabernacle and how it fits into this plan of God, we're going, we see that it's not the story. It is the grand story, but played out in miniature. But it 
leaves us wanting more. Pharaoh was destroyed in the Red Sea, but Pharaoh was not the serpent. The tabernacle points to Eden, but it's not Eden. For God's promise to be kept, for the story to reach its conclusion, every enemy must be defeated. And everything separating us from God must be removed so that we can dwell with Him in His temple, in His garden, forever. So that's where we're getting pushed. So to summarize everything I've just said, God desired to physically dwell with, with us forever. So He became flesh. Saved us from our sin. And is coming back bodily. God desired to physically dwell with us forever, so he became flesh, saved us from our sin, and is coming back bodily. So first, how do we know that God desires to dwell with his people? Well, verse 8 says it. Um, in verse 8, he says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Right? The purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose of of, of what they're going to build is that the Lord would dwell with his people. And notice that God doesn't say, let them make me a sanctuary that I can dwell in that. Right? God doesn't want a house and he doesn't need a house. The heavens are his house. He wants a way to dwell in the midst of his people. Which means that the tabernacle is going to be the focal point of God's glorious presence of consuming fire. And that means it has to be fit for a king. It has to be fit for the king. And so in verse 9, God says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern of its furniture, so shall you make it. It has to be fit for the king. It has to be exact as God says so. But notice that God says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Now, a pattern is something you look at and it's copied somewhere else. And it's kind of like saying, well, what's the original? Right? What, is, what is Moses going to do? He's going to make a copy of the original. So what is the original? Right? If the tabernacle is a copy, what's the original that he's copying? It's Sinai. Sinai is the pattern that Moses is going to replicate in the tabernacle. This mountain, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, is the pattern. Because the mountain of God is where God descended. The glory of the Lord descended upon the mountain in cloud and smoke. And so guess what happens when the tabernacle gets finished? The glory of the Lord descends and enters and fills the tabernacle in glory and smoke and cloud. The same thing. God says, I want it to be just like the mountain because that's what he's going to do to the tabernacle, what he's done to Sinai. Enter it, fill it, be in it, dwell in it. Which means that when we look at Sinai, it's telling us something about what's happening with the tabernacle. And we saw in Exodus 24 that Sinai is, is this focal point, this linchpin between heaven and earth. That Sinai is where the two were unified in Christ. Because remember, we saw Moses and the elders ascend the mountain and see God standing on a walkway of sapphire, one of the 12 gemstones of heaven. And this pattern 
of heaven and earth being united in one location will be repeated in the tabernacle. And there are two things in the text today that tell us this, that point us there. Uh, the first is the choice of materials, and the second is the way that the list of materials is constructed. So the first is some of the choices of materials, and the second is how God tells us about the materials. So first God says this in verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twin, uh, twin linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, balsam oil for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Right? All these materials are valuable are luxurious. They're, they're the best of the best, to say the least. But notice um, a couple of things. First, notice that the Lord specifies in verse 7 that he wants onyx stones. Now, this kind of stone shows up in Scripture in only a few places, which tells us these are connected. It shows up in Genesis 2, as God describes the Garden of Eden and the surrounding area. That the gold there was good, and there were onyx stones. And then it shows up in Revelation 21, as one of the 12 gemstones of the New Jerusalem. In other words, onyx is a, is a gemstone of heaven. Just like sapphire was in Exodus 24. It links, it draws together heaven and earth here in the tabernacle. In other words, the tabernacle it will be a mobile meeting point between heaven and earth, a mobile Sinai, just like how Mount Sinai does the same thing. But notice the second thing that shows us that, that something is happening, that heaven and earth are coming together, is that uh, each type of material God calls for comes in threes of greater to lesser value with the exception of verse 7. But notice in verse 3, gold, silver, bronze. Greatest, middle, less. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, and then goat's hair. Tanned ram skins, then goat skins, acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. The ESV then says spices, Next, but you've heard me already say it, it's likely another oil called balsam oil for anointing. And then frankincense, incense. So it divides it in threes, from greater to middle to lesser value. Why? Why does God do this? Because the materials of the tabernacle reflect the pattern of the mountain. Because the mountain of God was split into threes, of greater, middle, and lesser. The peak of the mountain, the pinnacle, was the most holy place where only Moses was allowed to go. In the midsection of the mountain, the middle part, was holy. But only the elders were allowed to go with Moses, but not the people. And then you have the bottom, the base of the mountain. That's where the people were allowed to go. Greater, middle, least. It's split into three. Holy of holies, holy place, 
and the outer court. That's how the tabernacle is constructed. There's the Holy of Holies, the most inner sanctum, the most holy place, the greatest place. And then you have the holy place outside of that. And then you have the outer court. And this pattern is reflected in the materials that God chooses and how the tabernacle is constructed and how the mountain is constructed and how the world is constructed. God dwells in heaven. The earth is his footstool. And then there's the waters beneath the earth. So tabernacle, the tabernacle is a mobile mountain. It's a mobile Sinai. But bear with me. Things are going to get a little bit weirder. Because Sinai itself is not the original. Sinai itself is also a pattern. A copy of something else. A different mountain. An older mountain. In Ezekiel 28, we learn that the Garden of Eden was planted on a mountain. The mountain where God once dwelt with his people is where he has said, here's the pattern, I will dwell with you. Like I did with Eden, here in Sinai, and now in the tabernacle. God is saying that this story is playing itself out over and over and over again. We were once cut off by the fall, but I will bring you back to the Garden of Eden, and I will dwell with you again. However, there's a big problem in Exodus. And it's coming up very quickly in chapter 32. And we've already seen the problem. Because Israel's not allowed to touch Mount Sinai. And they're not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Which means that the Garden of Eden, even though it's being patterned again, it's being copied in the Mount Sinai and then in the tabernacle, for him to dwell in, in Israel's midst and for Israel to have access to God in his garden, in his sanctuary, yet they're not allowed to go in. Not yet. The problem is that they are still sinful. The problem is that Pharaoh was not the enemy keeping Israel from God. The problem is that they need a way into the garden itself. But before we can fix the problem, before we can find out what God will do in this story, the Lord is going to teach us about himself through the tabernacle, through the materials that he chooses, God is communicating something about himself. And the first thing that all these materials communicate is that God loves his creation. Each material God chooses has character. It's gold and silver and bronze. Blues and purples and scarlets, tanned ramskins that were tanned deep red, 
brown, deep brown acacia wood, pure and brightly burning oil, sweet and slightly spicy balsam oil, uh, smoky and earthy frankincense, incenses and perfumes. All these materials satisfy the senses. They address touch, taste, sight, smell. And these are what God wants his sanctuary to be built out of. Earthly stuff and good stuff. Beautiful stuff, things that smell amazing, things that have all the, satisfy all the senses. God delights in these things. God loves his creation. He loves his material world that he made because he invented it. God invented color. God invented gold. He invented oils and perfumes and spices And he wants his sanctuary, his earthly habitation, where he will dwell with his people to be deeply physical. Because the very first thing we're told about the tabernacle is what it's made out of. And it's made out of stuff. Good stuff. This will not be the kind of temple where you go in and close your eyes and it's dark and you try to cut yourself off from the material world to worship God. This is going to be the kind of temple where you go in with your eyes wide open going, wow, God is amazing. God loves his creation, which leads to the second thing these materials communicate, which is that God wants to be worshipped physically because he is an incarnational God. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that man-made religions teach us that the material world is bad. And if you want to get close to God, you have to leave the material world. But Christianity teaches us something completely different. Christianity teaches us that the material world is good. And that God likes it so much that he comes down to dwell in it over and over again. The first thing God did was plant a garden. And he lived in it with his people. He's creating a tabernacle. Not some austere, bare-boned place. A place beautiful, with full of rich materials in all, that satisfy all the senses. He is an incarnational God. He wants to be in his creation with his people. And so he wants to dwell with them physically so that they will worship him physically. That's why God is building a tabernacle at all. But God is an incarnational God. What he's doing in the tabernacle is not new and it will not be the last time he does this. Because in Genesis, God walked in a garden. In Exodus 3, God came down to a burning bush. He didn't appear like a burning bush. He was in the burning bush, in his creation, incarnational. He came down to dwell on the mountain. He will fill the tabernacle. He will fill the temple that Solomon constructs. He is incarnational. So much so that he will much later fill a manger as a baby whose name was Emmanuel,
God with us. God is an incarnational God. He wants to dwell with his people physically in the world with them that he made. And thirdly, let's notice how these materials are to be provided. Verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. In other words, the Lord wants these materials, these physical materials, the building blocks of the tabernacle, to be gifts, physical gifts, from his people. Physical acts of free will giving. It says, from every man whose heart moves him means from every man who freely wants to give, to contribute, to offer up to God these materials. These are acts of worship that God is calling for. So the principle that you should draw from this is that God doesn't want you to leave the material world in order to offer Him worship. You don't need to turn off all the lights and sit in a darkened room to get close to God. You can be close to God in the world by worshiping Him physically, by glorifying Him as you eat and drink. God wants you to physically worship Him. Because he is an incarnational God who wants to dwell with you. So we come to worship physically. We sing physically. We listen to the words spoken. We hear the piano playing, the, the music. We physically offer him material gifts as offerings. Now, even though I, I know we do it, probably all of you, most of you, offer paper checks that doesn't convey quite the same physicality as gold coins, but the imagery is the same. We're giving God physical gifts, physical worship, because He's an incarnational God. And there's one more way that we worship Him physically, but we'll save it for the very end. So to recap what we said so far, God's goal is to dwell with His people physically, because He loves His creation because he's an incarnational God. This is the story that he is writing. He created the world so that he could live in it with his people. But the fall separated us from God. And God said, I will bring you back. I will bring you back to the garden that I made to live with you forever. This is the story that the book of Exodus is writing in miniature. Israel, separated from God, kept from God by the enemy. God conquered the enemy. He crushed the head of Pharaoh and brought Israel out of slavery to himself, to his holy mountain, his garden, to dwell with them. But even though the book of Exodus is playing this story out, we know that this is not the end. In fact, if you look at your Bible, it's, it's pretty much the beginning of the story. But we know it in our hearts, and it will be painfully obvious in Exodus, that even though Pharaoh was destroyed, the real enemy keeping his people from him was their own sin. 
that the reason Israel can't touch the mountain, the reason that Israel is not allowed to go into the holy place, is because they are sinners. And it's why only Moses is allowed to go to the peak of the mountain. It's why only the high priest is allowed into the Holy of Holies. And even then, once a year. And it's why the story isn't finished when the tabernacle is built. Because the tabernacle was temporary. But God wants to dwell with his people forever. Ezekiel 37 says this, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. That is what we are hoping for. So because God desired to dwell with his people physically and forever, he did something about it. John 1 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. God with us. See, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not new. If you've been tracking through the whole of Scripture up to this point, you would say, of course. Now, it's surprising because God is doing something in a surprising way. But he's not doing something fundamentally new. God has always been incarnational. God has always wanted to dwell with his people here on earth. The surprising part is when he takes on human flesh to dwell with us and walk with us here. But God did it because he was writing a story. And the story was that his bride was alienated from him. So Jesus took on flesh to become a hero. To become the hero who would do battle with our ancient enemies. To become the hero who would die for his bride. Who would give his life in order to save the life of his beloved. The story God's writing is a love story. That God so loved the world that he took on flesh. He died for her sins so that he can dwell with her forever. So that he can run off into the sunset with her. So that he can bring her into his garden and live in peace and joy forever. That is the story God's writing. That Jesus Christ is our hero, our savior. He came and defeated our enemies on the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent. He put sin to death and then conquered death and rose from the grave. This is the story. And yet, when Jesus Christ is resurrected, and even when he ascends, the story's not yet finished. Because scripture ends, the last couple chapters of the Bible end with a picture of the new Jerusalem breaking through heaven and coming down to earth. 
And Revelation 21 says that in that city, there will not be a temple. There will be no temple and no tabernacle in the New Jerusalem because God will be the temple. God will be dwelling there with his people physically forever. So the last words of the Bible, Behold, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming back bodily to dwell with us physically forever. And that end of the story is actually the beginning of the next. That when Jesus returns, it will be the conclusion, the final verse of this grand story he's been writing, but it's actually the beginning of the next one. The never-ending story that will go on for eternity and every page will be filled with joy. But until we get there, until we can see Jesus face to face, let's go back to that last way that we worship God physically. And that is by receiving the supper. Because God says, in the supper, the bread is the body of Christ. Receive him physically. Taste and see that God is good. He loves you physically and will care for you physically and will nourish you physically. And he will do it spiritually. And he says, behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. So this supper before us tells us that God is with us. Even though we're waiting for Jesus to return physically, he gives himself to us today in the supper so that we get to receive his body. So I'd like to invite the elders forward so we can receive uh, this meal. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you again that you came down to us. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this. And we ask that you would work this truth into our hearts and that it would come out into our lives, that we would love others as you have loved us, that we would worship you physically and joyfully in your creation, Lord, that we would delight and give glory to you, whether it's through eating or drinking or all that we, all that we do in this world, that we may glorify you and delight in the things that you delight in. Lord, guide us and lead us by your spirit. And Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.